you are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. Today, we're going to go long. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, March 8th, 2022. This is episode number 231. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cannabis is Favorite grandma aka nanogram if you're listening to the podcast or watching on the youtube channel the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m pacific standard time on clubhouse spark it up with us and over 27,000 state of cannabis news hour members if you want to be an audience participant that's one of the cool things about this show. Not only do we have a panel of expert correspondents, often we have someone in our audience that is intimately involved in the story. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about did XE's CEO snitch? Brittany Greiner, an update on the Beverly Hills safe deposit box case, candidates to Congress running on pro-pot platform, hanky-panky in New Jersey, Illinois and equity, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Nicole West. She is a cannabis business specialist, director of operations at LB Atlantis, and an important advocate for the plant. Nicole is a veteran in the cannabis industry and is always ready to use her experience to guide others. That experience includes taking a felony for a vague and confusing law. During her brief incarceration, she earned the nickname Jail Google from fellow inmates. What's your headline today, Nicole? Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Um, My headline today actually comes out of Law 360, and it's in regards to ease. When the actual headline states, Fed's credit ease ex-CEO as help in pot fraud takedown. Now, I just want to make sure to make mention that in a lot of the situations when you're brought in for um, any sort of jury or grand jury or investigation, um, in the interaction of taking any sort of like plea deal or anything like that, there's usually a stipulation in regards to cooperating um, as things go forward. So I there's not a, a ton of meat on this, but I will read what Law 360 has. So So um, the former CEO of weed delivery app Ease should get a light sentence after helping convict his alleged co-conspirators in a scheme to conceal $150 million worth of federally illegal cannabis payments from banks, Manhattan federal prosecutors have said. 
The government on Saturday submitted a so-called uh, 5K1 letter for James Patterson, 42, who is scheduled to be sentenced this week. Patterson pled guilty in February of 2021 to helping launder ESA's payments and testified the next month against businessman uh, Hamid Ray Akhavan and Ruben Wingard, both of whom were convicted of bank fraud. Despite Patterson admitted crime, prosecutors said that the former CEO earned a lenient sentence throughout extensive cooperation with the government and his trial testimony explaining the inner workings of Akhavan and Winglad's alleged scheme. Patterson testified the encrypted text messages, communications, and emails that with co-defendant meeting that he had an affidavit with Akhavan and other co-conspirators and conversation that he had with Akhavan, the government wrote. So they're saying that he testified that they the things that they took from him are true. Um, in short, Patterson helped secure the conviction of two key members in this scheme. Prosecutors added that Patterson deserved credit for taking the stand, even though Akhavan, who purportedly owned the arsenal of guns, allegedly had threatened violence years earlier when Patterson attempted to cut ease ties with illegal payment proce processing operations. Patterson advanced similar arguments in his own sentencing memorandum, seeking a term supervised release on Friday. The ex-CEO said that while cooperating uh, with prosecutors, uh, he lived with the continual fear that Mr. Akhavan would now attempt to make good on his prior th threats against him. A representative for the government declined to comment on the sentencing submission on Monday, and Patterson's lawyer did not respond to requests for comment, and the counsel for Akhavan did not return any inquiry about the alleged violations or threats towards Patterson. A Manhattan federal jury found Akhavan and Wingard guilty in March of 2021 of settling, uh, setting up an elaborate system by which Ease, dubbed as Uber of Pot, could process cannabis transactions without being flagged by banks between 2016 and 2019. While marijuana is legal in California for adults over 21, financial institutions are unwilling to process related transactions because it remains illegal under federal law. So um, this is actually something that we've been following for a while. I believe I was the person that reported on it when it first came out in regards to um, the uh, fraud case that was being brought against them for their credit card transactions. So we'll roll back the the this uh, story a little bit by stating the initial process was brought onto them because the organization that was processing the credit cards was utilizing different um, uh, ghost business names to process these credit card transactions so that the credit card tra um, uh, processors were not able to actually know what it was that was being sold. For instance, there was um, 24-hour uh, yoga and ice cream scoops were a couple of the companies that were you would see on your credit card transaction when you were running a sale through the original Ease uh, accepting credit card portal. Now, I think it's really interesting in general because there's been several companies that have come out in the conversation in regards to utilizing credit cards. Now, I want to be quite clear. Majority of these companies that I've seen are operating in some version of this where they're either finding a, a workaround by stating that it is, you know, some business that it's not exactly, they're processing it through another company that's going through another company, or I've even seen the ones that are going through now that are utilizing the quote-unquote ATM service fee where they're charging at $5 increments. So it's basically tricking the system into thinking that it's an ATM transaction. So I'm not really sure how this is all going to shake out at the very end, but 
Um, in June, U.S. District Judge Jed S. Reinkoff sentenced Akavan and Wingland to 30 months and 15 months in prison, respectively. Judge Reinkoff rejected the government's $17 million forfeiture request for Akavan, prompting prosecutors to launch an appeal. Akavan and Wingard have both appealed their convictions as well. The three challenges have been consolidated and are pending before second second court circuit. Um, the government represented by Christopher Demise, uh, Nicholas Foley, and Tara Lamort, and Emily Derringer of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern Court District of New York. Patterson is represented by Emily R. Shulman of Walmerhale. Um, and those are the bits of information that I've got for you guys. I'm super curious to see what this actually does um, to credit card transactions as a whole, because while this is something that is exposing ease, they're not alone in this interaction like and and at the end of the day when you're looking at these processes um a lot of the times you're dealing with companies that are coming to you saying this is the legitimate way to process a credit card and if you're not actually in the credit card processing business um and have extensive legal review it's really hard to disseminate whether that's true or false but with that said i will highly recommend any person that's going to consider processing any sort of credit card transaction or anything along those lines definitely consult with your lawyer and get them to look over everything with a fine-tooth comb. And I'm Nicole West reporting for State of Cannabis News. I couldn't agree with you more, Nicole. The All these credit card processing companies are all a bunch of uh, false hope promising money launderers. Well, and they like convince you right, no. that it's the right answer. <laughs> That's because they want the business and they want to get the processing fees so they can generate their own revenue and skim off the top. So, Nicole... So, Nicole, was the issue that they were creating fraudulent companies or was it that they were using codes that were assigned to other different, um, you know, other different businesses in order to process it? And so when you went back to look, it was it both? It was both. Yeah, there was uh, several um, businesses that were created as um, businesses to, to process in between that were not the actual plant touching business. And then they were also coding it as that type of business. So they gotcha. were building businesses so they could code them as such. So um, since, you, since you reported on this, what, what's your thoughts on have you guys heard about the like the cashless ATM? Well, that's like, what I was talking about, of... the ATM. The, fi- the They're doing it as like transactions. And that's just tricking the credit card companies and the processors into thinking that it's an actual ATM uh, transaction. And you can go about it as an ATM. So uh, to me, that's fraud, too. But I, I mean, I'm not a lawyer. It's all money laundering, Roz. All of it. It's all fucking money laundering. All right, so let, let, me, let me say something here because I was actually in that part of the industry um, before I got into deeper into corporate finance, and I did uh, a short stint uh, working for an ISO independent scale sales organization for credit processing uh, right before I got into the uh, cannabis industry too. Partially true what you said, Jason. Uh, yes, is a lot of fraudulent bullshit uh, claims by a lot of those credit card processing companies. And what we used to do uh, when I was signing on uh, when I was signing on dispensaries was we would run the rail on and we would just code it as either a gun shop or a smoke shop or something like that. So it's still a high um, a risk. And um, yes, the fees are, are stupid high, something like 6%. Um, and you would tell people that they're that high because we're taking on the risk uh, as that company. The truth of the matter is uh, on the interchange rate, uh, MasterCard and Visa they're giant fucking companies. They're not going to even touch the cannabis industry in a broad range until it's federally legal, period. So like 99.9%, unless you set up your own interchange, you set up your own system, which a lot of people don't have the money to do that, 99% of these companies are bullshit 
and they're lying to you when they say that they can legally process uh, credit cards. There are like two or three that are doing it um, uh, legally, uh, but it's really, really hard to get on their system, and they're not really, really proven on a broad sense either. Like Nicole said, contact your lawyer. Make sure that you are checking every single box necessary, crossing your T's, dotting your I's, and just remember, like, until it's federally legal, we're not going to have access to that, and um, it just is what it is. And that is a positive for safe banking. I'll give you that, Jason. If safe banking were to pass, like we would get credit card processing, but everybody else would still get fucked. Yeah, I have pass to, safe I, banking. Wait, I have to. I have to chime in here. I mean, Rico, you're almost right. It's not 99. percent It is 100 percent illegal. All of them are um, somehow masked. It is somehow, um, you know, going through an offshore transaction or going through in some other disguised manner. None of those credit card transactions are lawful uh, under U.S. law. And, and I, I would caution people when they when you say, uh, Rico and Nicole, to talk to your lawyer, I would say don't talk to your lawyer because odds are your lawyer is not skilled and versed in financial crimes. And you need to find a financial crimes lawyer specifically to deal with these credit card I mean, issues. Yeah, yeah, you you might be ensnaring your lawyer in a money laundering scheme if you involve your lawyer. Well, no to lawyers. Just tell them don't do that. Tell them no. I've been like the negative. Just call Sal. Over. I've been the negative Nancy over and over in companies that I've consulted for in regards to this. And every single time, you know, after they get shut down, that it's the most sad, I told you so, but I've literally never been wrong about this where I'm like, no, this is a workaround and workarounds are not as good as reach rounds guys. Just call Saul. (laughs) It's all about perspective. Stone, did you want to weigh in? And then we've got Ollie up from the audience. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, I guess this is another illicit market created by prohibition so scheduler bus ollie did you want to weigh in yeah just uh, thank you for allowing me to speak and this is a great story i want to just chime in that i hope many of us uh take the route that corner stores and mom and pop shops have been taking forever and a day and just get an atm company to put a real atm in your retail shop and i hope retailers look at the safe legal option of just putting an atm there paying the fees and you'll still make a couple of bucks on the side like every corner store has done for a long time. Thank you for letting me. Ali, the the problem is, is America and Americans want things the quickest, fastest way. And they often just turn the blind eye to whatever is going to take one extra step. I'm going to say even further still, not the quickest, fastest, Rico. Um, when you have a credit card transaction, you're usually getting about 25% larger ticket transactions. So this isn't just about the quickest, fastest. This is about the most. You can get uh, capture the most money if you actually allow people to run a credit card. And so this is the reason why people are so incentivized to do so. Okay. I not, to, not to mention with the credit cards, you're a, people are able to charge uh, and spend money that they don't actually have as opposed to an ATM. They can only withdraw money that they actually have in their bank. Okay. I didn't mean for this story to go this long, but we've got interesting folks up from the audience. Mitchell, uh, let's hear from you and then Jacob, and then we're going to go to the next story. Yes. Thank you, guys. Just a quick uh, – eventually we should use Bitcoin. If we use Bitcoin for transactions, I think it would bunk all this stuff. Thank you. Oh, hell no. Not, not, not federally approved currency. Sorry, Mitchell. Don't, please don't do that. Just don't do that. You'll get wrapped up. <laughs> It'll be a whole other money laundering case. Jacob, did you want to weigh in? Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure you guys had sort of mentioned this earlier, but you can use some cashless systems are 
legal if they're debiting through your ATM like a hyper. I don't know what the, Again, that's just the, the workaround. It's that just, that just is fake it's news, not, Jacob. It's because you're you're calling it something that it's not. It's still attached to a registered terminal. The money is still coming out of the cannabis business. If you spend more than the amount that it is, so say it's a $16 transaction, the credit card will or the the system will bill you for 20. That change comes out of the cannabis register to get it back into your pocket. So I absolutely disagree, sir. Not it's a fraud. Yeah, not to mention, too, all electronic charges are governed by the federal government, and therefore you're using a federal platform in order to enable a scale of a Schedule One drug. All right. Well, I was going to say uh, the 24-hour the yoga <laughs> company. It's like 24 hours of yoga. I hope at least it's hot box yoga. But uh, we spent a lot of time on that. Very interesting story. Thank you so much, Nicole. Up next is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. He's also the patriarch of dad jokes on the show and keeps the show spicy. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Canavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the state of cannabis news hour what you got today rico oh man so this is probably the the, the biggest story in the industry over the weekend uh, we wanted to cover it yesterday but we ran out of time um and i'm actually glad we have a little extra uh, minutes on for us today so uh britney griner star star WNBA center is detained in russia the New York Times was first to report saturday superstar WNBA player britney griner was de- detained in russia the arrest happened in February, but the exact date and her whereabouts since the arrest are both uncertain. Russia's Interfax news agency reported she's not allowed to leave Russia after federal customs service ale- uh, services alleged uh, alleged a working dog detected hashish oil cartridges and illegal narcotic in the country were in her luggage at uh, Shemerevo Airport just outside Moscow. If found guilty, the offense could mean 10 years in prison. For those unfamiliar with what the fuck Britney, or who the fuck Brittany Griner is, here are just a few of her recent U.S. accolades. WNBA champion, 2014. Seven-time WNBA All-Star, 2013, 15, 17, 19, and 21. Two-time WNBA scoring champion, 2017 and 2019. Eight-time WNBA blocks leader, 2013 through 2019 and 2021. Two-time Olympic gold medal winner, also. For those questioning why the fuck she'd be in Russia in the first place? Well, she played in Russia for more than six years now in the WNBA offseason, as many other female athletes do as well. In fact, she's a three-time Russian National League champion from 2015 to 2017, four-time Euro League champion 2016, 18, 19, and 21, and a Russia Cup winner in 2017. See, it doesn't matter how good you are as a woman in America at whatever you do. You're not paid as much as male counterparts. 31 years old one of the best all-around players in the world, and she only has an estimated net worth between 3 and $5 million. Griner made 221k base salary in the most recent WNBA season, making her league's seventh highest paid. Fun fact, she's the third highest paid on her superstar-heavy Phoenix Mercury team behind Scholar Diggins-Smith at 227900 and one of the GOATs, also a friend of mine, Diana Taurasi, uh, is the league's highest paid at just 228,000. I actually beat Diana in a game of Papa Shot back in 2017. Facts are facts, D, if you're listening to this, run this motherfucking tape. In comparison, Steph Curry is the NBA's yearly salary uh, um, winner at $45.7 million. 
It's not uncommon for WNBA players to compete in the U.S. and then spend the offseason playing overseas. Grider chose Russia, where big-name female players routinely earn more than a million a year, four to five times more than what they can in the U.S. 70 WNBA players competed overseas this offseason, and the league confirmed all other players are out of Russia and Ukraine. The Brittany Griner saga is a sad one, and it's probably not going to end quickly, and she'll most likely be used as a high-valued bargaining chip by Putin with U.S. officials. Women's History Month is is not really well known on a broad scale, though it's been a thing since 1980. The discrepancy of women's pay compared to male counterparts has increasingly become uh, come under scrutiny over the past several years, amplified as the U.S. women's national team sued the U.S. Soccer Federation in a class action lawsuit, which just settled for a total of $24 million February 22nd. I really do hope Griner makes it out of this situation safe and in sound mental shape. And as a reminder to everyone, this is happening in the fog of war. We don't know if Brittany had a vape pen on her, uh, if it was planted by the Russians, or it was nothing at all. Government agencies and mainstream media sources cannot be relied on for facts as to what's real and what's not, both abroad and here in the U.S. America has a healthy history of joining and starting wars based on lies peddled to the public. World War II, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan. Those are a few blockbuster hits y'all may have just heard about. All started by uh, all started by lies. The bigger story here is how the United States' unfair pay of women in our version of capitalism is now clearly a threat to national security. Pay women what they're worth, and we won't have to cover stories like this again. This is Rico Lamit, the dopest dad on the street, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Happy Women's History Month. I'm willing to bet Rico that she got caught with a Delta Eight pen and free Britney. <laughs> Jesus, man. I really hope it wasn't Delta 8. That would be the absolute... I'm willing to bet it was. I put money on it. Why? Would, why? Yeah, why? They call why? it ha a hash pen. Of course they call it hash pens. They're Russians. They don't know no other language other than hash. <laughs> but why would it be Delta 8? Like, why is that what you would Because pay? it's the most accessible thing on the planet for her to have got her hands on. Where's home for her? Uh, Texas. Uh, yeah. yeah! Delta I 8, baby! <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, damn it. I stand down. Damn, damn, damn. I stand down. We've got Lauren Sampson up from the audience. Lauren, did you want to comment on Rico's headline? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hey, what's up, Rico? Nubia420 here. So um, I just, this is, just seems so odd to me that a professional athlete who's played in the country for the past six years suddenly forgets that she has a vape pen on her. Like, it doesn't track. You're talking about so she's going somewhere where she's making the majority of her money versus playing in the U.S. And it just so happens to be in the middle of a war in the country she's in happens to be getting heavily sanctioned by the rest of the world, but by the U.S. Like, come on now. At some hey, point, we got to be like, listen. <laughs> Lauren, there was, a news, there was a news piece that said it was a conspiracy. I read that earlier this morning. They were talking about it was a setup and that it, there's another guy. His name is Trevor something, but he's, all, he's also detained over in Russia. And he was given his own kind of like commentary, like it, they think it might be a setup or what have you. Now, why pick her out of everybody that's over there that's coming out? But you do have a good point. Yeah, yeah I mean, she is easily the like Raz, one of the largest Raz, I think you're, you're talking about the, players. Trevor Reed. Yeah, Roz, I think you're talking about the TMZ story that came out the, uh, this morning. 
Yeah, I read that one too. Uh, Trevor, the U.S. Marine, they said that he's, he incited a fight or a riot or something like that. He's been detained for a couple of years. Yeah. I read that There's one. another yeah. is, is, um, U.S. Israeli woman too that uh, that is being held uh, by Russia for cannabis as well. So this is an ongoing thing. And I don't think for a second that she forgot about the vape pen and just had it. I think she intentionally had it in her bag and thought she was above the law. That's insane. In a place like Russia, I don't what think. What logic is that? You think she was? She thought she was above the law and was like, come on. A hundred percent. I mean, think no. about it. How many people no. have vape pens pulled out of their fucking bags when they travel with Bro, in I mean, Russia, it's a very common thing. I gotta say no. no. I gotta say no, man. Like Bro, she, no, she's no. played there seven. No she's played way. there seven years. She's played there seven oh. years. If she has a weed connect there, her connect is on the ground, man. She's played yeah. seven fucking years. She's been detained for weeks, and we didn't hear anything from anyone. Not her family. Not her girlfriend. Not her. Not government officials. Detained for at least three weeks before we found out about it. That's pretty weird. And I'm going to say hard no on a woman of color thinking that she was above the law in fucking Russia. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hard, hard no. Hard yeah. fucking no. And she's queer, and she's queer yeah. too, so you know she, she's under the Negative. microscope. Not, not only not, under the microscope, they're probably watching her at all times because she's not hard to miss. Tall, a woman of yeah, color, an outspoken LGBT, yeah. you know, identified athlete. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Yeah, it makes no sense. But yeah, but I'd like to remind everybody again: none of this is going to make sense. We're in the fog of war, so believe none of what you hear, half of what you see. Yeah, well, this is uh, a good segue to our next correspondent. Thank you for that headline. Unless anybody else has something they want to drop in on uh, before we jump. Free Britney. Okay. Free Britney. Uh, Great segue to you, Mr. Jason Beck. Jason Beck's the longest-running retailer in the U.S. cannabis history and the literal highest member of the GOP. Actually, physically, mentally, highest member. And elephant in every smoking room. What do you have for us today, Jason? Oh, thank you so much, Nicole. Today, I have a, a, a hometown story right here out of Beverly Hills where a Beverly Hills store pleads guilty to laundering drug money. A Beverly Hills store in a strip mall on Olympic Boulevard, which recently rents safe deposit boxes to customers, wasn't just holding its clients' cash, jewelry, and valuables. U.S. Private Vaults Incorporated, which ran the store, has pleaded guilty to conspiring with customers to launder drug money. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles reached a plea deal to prevent filing criminal charges against the owners, Mark Paul, and hold on, trigger warning, Michael Police. That's right. That's his real fucking name, Michael Police. As such, upon sentencing, their company will be difficult to collect from as it has almost zero assets. Still, the company admitted to flagrant wrongdoing. They recruited drug traffickers as customers and ran the resulting money through the business, a.k.a. cleaning, in parentheses, the currency. People who worked at the company also sold cocaine, set up drug deals at the store, and showed customers how to make cash transactions so they could cheat requirements around currency reporting guidelines. The Beverly Hills store was forced out of business in March of 2021 when federal agents in possession of a search warrant took away all of its 800 safety deposit boxes. The judge who okayed the search warrant blocked the government from sifting through or otherwise seizing the contents of the boxes, instead ordering that the owners of the boxes' contents be found and their valuables be returned. Still in June, the FBI and U.S. Attorney's Office moved to keep more cash seized from the vault that the federal agents found in 369 boxes to the tune of, get ready folks, 
$86 million in cash and more in jewelry and valuables. Prosecutors claim that the box holders were engaged in criminal activity, which would allow them to seize the boxes, but have offered to offer no evidence. Lawyers for the box holders maintain there was no probable cause. And after a slurry of lawsuits, the FBI has returned the contents of about 75 of those boxes and plans to give back the items found in at least 175 more. And this is because there was no evidence of criminal activity said Tom Mroziek, I fucking murdered his last name, it's M-R-O-Z-E-K, spokesman for the U.S. Attorney General's office. And it just so happens that I happen to know a lot of people. So I spoke with uh, someone who used this location and had uh, safety deposits seized by the feds. And here's what they had to say regarding the matter. In a quote, uh, the anonymous source states, the situation at the U.S. private vaults is very chaotic, to say the least. While the judge has ordered the return of some boxes, the FBI is still demanding in-person meetups and requesting customers identify and disclose the exact contents in their boxes. From personal experience, this is still a very intimidating procedure as the Justice Department has specified further investigations could and may arise from these disclosures. In the five-plus years of being a customer, there was never any indication that there were any nefarious or criminal activity being conducted at these locations, rather just a safe place to store your valuable possessions. I believe it surprised a majority of its customers that any of these acts uh, alleged by the federal government ever happened at this location. The operation always appeared to be very above board while holding the box holder's identity anonymously. Well, I'll tell you what, be careful while you stash your stash and stash your cash because all of a sudden the feds just might seize that shit. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Thank you for covering that, Jason. That was actually like one of my first stories that I covered on State of Cannabis News Hour last year. And somebody just opened their fucking mouth or they had a bad lawyer or something because there's so many holes in this shit. I think, unfortunately, so <laughs> unfortunately for the box holders that have not already recovered their property, this plea deal is potentially going to make it more difficult for them to recover their property because now there is the, I guess, um, taint that it was involved in a conspiracy for money laundering because these owners have pled guilty. Taint. (laughs) I knew that one was going to get you. If nobody else has a comment, we're going to go ahead and relight this room. Going, going, gone. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers, not those of any other speaker, State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and State of Cannabis and its speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or any other authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationships. The sponsorship of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expressions of any of the opinions whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any of its speakers. Viewer discretion advised. I'm going to keep smoking the news. I love it when one of our correspondents are in the news. Out of the WeHoville, my headline is Oz Jason Beck will lead WeHo's Cannabis Tourism Board. Yay, Jason! (laughs) Jason Beck has been appointed as the board president of the country's first municipal cannabis tourism association. Did you hear that right? This is America's first municipal 
Cannabis Tourism Association. So move over, Amsterdam. We're going to we we're going WeHo style. Mr. Beck is in the unique position of being a patient, specialist, advocate, and advisor in the fields of medicinal and adult use of cannabis. Mr. Beck has regularly provided his insights on the industry for over 20 years to federal, state, and local government officials and legislators of all political persuasions. I don't know if that's fake news. No, it's true. Scott Smith, executive director of Emerald Village West Hollywood, said since the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, West Hollywood has been the forefront of the movement to legalize cannabis in the United States. Local pioneers like Jason Beck paved the way for medical dispensaries to open and are now guiding the Emerald Village into its new reputation as a global cannabis destination. Founded in 2021, Emerald Village West Hollywood is a representative organization for cannabis businesses exclusively in the city of West Hollywood. Declared as Emerald Village and the world's cannabis capital, Emerald Village West Hollywood is governed by a board of directors to promote tourism, understanding of legal cannabis regulations, consumer safety, and advocacy for cannabis decriminalization and social justice. Locals and tourists alike can plan their cannabis Adventures in West Hollywood through the Emerald Village website. Thank you so much, Jason, for being a part of the show and doing what you do. Woo, woo, woo. Jason, big, big, big props on this. Uh, huge things that you've done just in general for the industry, while sometimes uh, your conservative propaganda makes me want to rip my fucking skin out. Um, I genuinely feel like you've done more for this industry than most of the people that we know. So thank you for fighting the good fight and also for making it fun. Big props, Jason. I'm happy to know you. Cannabis Tourism Board in 22, Jason Beck for president in 24. That positive press, Jason. I love it. Yes, and as as president of the Emerald Village, I plan to ensure that West Hollywood is the premier cannabis destination in the globe. So, Jason, are you now going to uh, take seriously that title of El Presidente? First of all, Rico, I take all titles seriously. Title Nine as well. All titles are, that are real. Are you going to Are you going to make West Hollywood a safe space for cannabis? Again, it is one of the safest spaces. Again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make it the safest space in America. Again, Jason, you need to get some cannabis cops and and write tickets for make sure it's a booth free zone. Oh, that would be a great idea to get some street signs put up that says that it's a booth free zone. I'm totally going to bring that up to the board and we are going to definitely work on implementing that. Jason, I will have to say that I am fighting you for the ter- the title because they've named me at work the booth proof boss. So that's all right. I'm the booth proof president. You can be the booth proof boss all day. Hell yeah. It's really important. We preserve our air quality for all of our citizens of West Hollywood and the world by eliminating all booth. Make Cannabis, a safe place in West Hollywood. Again. All right, I think we're at time for that one. So uh, coming up next, in an industry full of snakes, fakes, and flakes, in the great purple state of Texas with trolls posting up daily smoking Delta 8 under the bridge, this fellow dope dad is hitting the high road. That's right. He's the host and co-creator of the new show with Sensi Mag and a fellow seeker of truth. Coming to the stage is Stone Slade. What you got for my man?
Thank you, Rico. Looking forward to uh, seeing you at the upcoming South by my friend. I'm going to carry on some happy news uh, right after Susan's article. Today, my story comes from Marina Franco at Axios. After a long two-year debate, Costa Rica finally legalized medical cannabis last week, becoming the 11th Latin American nation to take that step. Lawmakers and cannabis activists hope that to bring investments to the small Central American country in an effort to reduce the illegal market, which has been growing quite quickly over the past few years. Costa Rican government is shooting for May of this year to open up permits for Costa Ricans interested in getting medical cannabis. I couldn't find any information on whether uh, you will be required to be a Costa Rican citizen to qualify or if they'll allow cards from, from other countries, which would obviously be a big benefit to tourism. My guess, though, is that tourists will have to wait for adult use to pass. Some more things covered uh, by the bill or are in the and future works for legislation include Costa Ricans can now legally grow hemp for industrial use. There's also the possibility, of course, that uh, they will approve adult use cannabis in the near future. A bill is sitting, has been sitting in Congress since April that hasn't gone anywhere. Um, the top two candidates, however, uh, for the upcoming runoff for president say that they both support adult use cannabis. So you're saying there's a chance. Costa Rican's bill was not without controversy. President Alvarado vetoed an earlier version, arguing that limits needed to be placed on individual cultivation and consumption. Uh, patients who will benefit from easier access to medical marijuana took to Twitter to thank Ziola Rosa Violo. I know I butchered that. Uh, the lawmaker behind the bill for pushing it through Congress, one cancer patient posted a tearful video describing how medical cannabis had helped her regain her appetite and the ability to walk again. I got to say, this makes me happy. Costa Rica is one of my favorite out-of-America places to go. Um, and I'm not just being a lover of the plant and not being happy just because the Costa Ricans can finally get that plant medicine that they so desperately need. But man, the two kinds of flour I usually find down there are uh, very similar to what we all smoked back in the 80s. It was nasty and smashed, and who knows what was in it. And the, the second bud I had was ni nicer looking, but not much nicer in flavor. So way to go, Costa Rica. Um, I'm rooting for you for adult use, and thanks for finally making clean medical cannabis available to your citizens. I'm Stone Slade, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Let's go to fucking Costa Rica. Let's go. So does yeah. this mean next time I go to Costa Rica, I can have, like, capuchin monkeys, like, bring me weed on a tray? It's going in that direction. It's no WeHo, but it should be fun. Can we get, can get some kind of international deal set up? Uh, Mr. President of International Cannabis Trade, Jason Beck, could we get some kind of deal set up so we can get uh, cut rates when we travel there to smoke the best weed in the world? You know it, Rico. You know I'm all about cutting deals and not just only deals, but only the best deals in the world. We're going to be making lots of deals at our event in June. Those Costa Rican people will be in town. That they will, and they will have the ability to try the best weed in the world. As long as it comes out of Jason Beck's hand. Otherwise, it runs a high likelihood of being booed. You know, it, when I went to Costa Rica, it looked to me like it, it, you could just drop a seed on top of the dirt and it would grow. It's just so beautiful. Does anyone know how difficult it is to cultivate outdoors in Costa Rica? Well, I, I think it not about the cultivation is difficult, but the drying component is even far more difficult than just the cultivation component there because of the, the environment. Right. That's the problem in Jamaica too, right? I've never seen such weird looking weed. All, I mean, all of those Caribbean areas. I mean, even Florida, it's hard to dry weed. Yeah. It looks like 12 months out of the year, it's 80 degrees or below and always uh, about 60 to 80% humidity. So yeah, the drying is going to be next to impossible. It's keeping molds and, and pathogens out. If you're trying to do any sort of outdoor greenhouse, it's going to be really fucking difficult. Uh, but you know, it looks like there's a lot of sun. The amount of rain though is going to make it a really hard hard push um to grow cannabis well 
but we will be able to export California cannabis once we have federal legalization to these island nations, and then they will be proof. Boof proof. That's what we're going to be talking about at the event in June. Stay tuned for the press release on Thursday, folks. You're going to want to be there. Amazing. Thank you so much for that story, Stone. And if nobody else has any comments about Costa Rica, we'll go ahead and hop to our next correspondent, Ms. Roz McCarthy. Roz is the Minorities for Medical Marijuana founder and CEO. What do you have for us today, Roz? Good morning, Nicole. How are you? Happy to be on. And we are, this story comes from MJ Biz Daily. And it is um, about Illinois. So Illinois craft cannabis grower bill highlight cannabis. I'm sorry. Let me start over. Illinois craft cannabis grower bill highlights tension between big companies and minority entrepreneurs. Back in 2019, many marijuana industry experts trumpeted Illinois as setting a new bar for social equity. State lawmakers created a potential blueprint to provide greater opportunities for minority entrepreneurs in Illinois in Illinois' new recreational cannabis industry. But three years later, the social equity program is still struggling to get off the ground in part because of lawsuits and the COVID-19 pandemic. At the same time, existing marijuana companies that were operating before the launch of adult use sales in 2020, they dominate a recreational market that today generates more than $1 billion. I'll say it again, $1 billion in annual revenue. Last summer, after a year-long delay, Illinois awarded 40 craft cannabis cultivation licenses, most of them to minority entrepreneurs. But the licensees say the 5,000-square-foot canopy limit is too restrictive. So they support legislation that would nearly triple the canopy size to 14,000 square feet, which they say is needed to attract investors and make their enterprises economically viable. Most big company, um, but most big marijuana companies oppose this this bill as is. Executives representing those companies insist they support the inclusion of minority entrepreneurs. Instead, these executives argue they want to ensure the winners of the more valuable 14,000 square foot licenses don't turn around and sell them to other companies, including out-of-state businesses. Well, who, like, what right do you have to tell people about their license? But I, I'll, I'll go on. Illinois is a microcosm of the conflict over market access between multi-state operators and minority entrepreneurs across the country. Other examples is Washington State, as well as in Virginia. Amber Littlejohn, executive director of the Minority Cannabis Business Association, characterizes the general situation as a misalignment of, state, of stated values on equity by some large companies and their policy positions and strategies actually executed on the ground. MSOs disagree, saying they only want to ensure that minority entrepreneurs keep their licenses for future generations, oh my gosh, of minority business owners. At least two MSOs, Cresco Labs and Cureleaf Holdings, are working with minority equity businesses to put such safeguards into the Illinois measure, according to industry sources. There's this, there is tension and distrust. Grown In, a newsletter covering the cannabis industry, was the first to report about a resistance from large cannabis companies to a bill in Illinois that would increase the allowed canopy, canopy size for craft cultivator, cultivators from 5,000 square feet to 14,000 square feet. The Cannabis Business Association of Illinois, CBAI, which includes MSOs, initially said in a statement that the state should pause to properly assess where our industry stands rather than attempt to make incremental changes to an, to an evolving industry. But the CBAI later clarified its stance, saying it supports allowing Black and Latino growers to operate 14,000 square feet of space, but doesn't endorse the legislation as currently drafted. That's because the association said the measure affords no protections to ensure 
that the benefit of this proposal actually goes to the Black and Latinx businesses for whom this category of licenses was intended. Illinois-based Cresco expressed similar sentiments. While supporting the goal, the current measure does not have sufficient safeguards to ensure generational ownership opportunities for people from these very communities. Chima Inia, Executive Vice President of Cresco Social Equity Educational Development Initiative, said in a statement. Jeremy Unruh, Senior Vice President of Public and Regulatory Affairs for Chicago-based Pharmacan, expressed another sentiment heard from multiple MSOs. The bill he wrote to Gronin does nothing to ensure the success of the operators the social equity provisions were intended to empower. Instead, it's a grab by a few noisy license holders who have no intention of becoming operational, but desire only to shop their paper license to out-of-state eagers to pay a premium into the Illinois market. The bill itself was straightforward in increasing the canopy size. The provisions regarding social equity businesses were set in the 2019 recreational marijuana law. Let me just get down a little bit and, and uh, kind of close this out with the fact that there is a the double standard. Little John said it is concerning that cannabis companies are fighting the technical de details of the measure rather than supporting the overarching goal to help equity businesses become economically viable. Canopy limits such as those set in Illinois are frequently unstable, uns unsustainable, she said. But she said she supports any effort to improve the, me the measure. Little John also suggested it's a double standard for larger companies, which are allowed up to 210,000 square feet of canopy, to begrudge some equity applicants from selling their licenses. Equity businesses, she noted, are competing with companies that enjoy economies of scale and have been able to grow and consolidate at will. So the situation in, in Illinois is being made difficult, if not impossible, for equity applicants, whether they intend to operate or intend to sell, she said. It's not a matter of being greedy, Little John said of the craft grower licenses. If the limits are too low, neither of these things, operate or sell, can happen. I'm Roz McCarthy, reporting to you for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Would love to hear you guys' comment before I go off. Yeah, Illinois is finding out the hard way that grass ain't greener. <laughs> well, I mean, so the the other thing is, I was told long time ago, Roz, when you go, and I would go into these different, um, you know, to these different legislative meetings and Senate meetings or whatever, and I'm fighting the fight, and, and I had good advice. Someone said, Roz, that's not your fight. That's not your fight to run. That's not your dog to race. Like, leave it alone. And I think sometimes with the big cannabis companies, I understand where you're coming from. But if you have someone that has a gets a license and if they decide, well, you know what, I changed my mind. I want to sell it or I want to do a partnership. We see acquisitions happening all over the place. How do you begrudge um, a social equity operator if that's what they choose to do, if they've earned the right to get that license? And so I just think that you have to be very careful the line that you walk on in regards to telling people how to like how to manage their license or what to do with it. I feel the same way. It's been something that I've really struggled with because like the idea of, you know, being able to build something that you can sell and, and you know, be able to say that you built something from the ground up, like that's the American dream and acquisitions are a part of, you know, the world and in the way of, you know, America and the way to be able to go to the next step. I mean, the alternative is to become so rich that you don't have to come to work every day, but like, that's usually not an option. And so like, I, I often am in support of people being able to find the opportunity to, to have an exit that makes them and their family money, you know, and I, it's, it's a, it's a hard line. And I, I, I often ask that question, like, do we then support that, um, you know, movement and say, hey, this is, you know, this was good for them and their family, you know? 
Well, I mean, l- listen, at the end of the day, you talk about 14,000 square feet versus some of the larger companies that have 210,000 square feet. Let's just, and, 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 you know, black folks, we get tired of being marginalized. Like we're going to try to micromanage what you get. Like if they if they qualify for social equity, if they get that opportunity, what have you, if they get into the business or not, if that's their license, allow folks to choose and do what they want to. I'm supporting of guardrails. I'm supporting individuals to make sure that we don't have people that gain the system. But the it's almost like the audacity to say, hey, we want you to get in, but we're going to tell you exactly what you should do with your license. I just think it's like it's just bad business. We've got Jamila Jam up from the audience. Uh, Jamila, did you want to weigh in on Roz's headline? Um. May I ask about this? Like, what's the... Like, okay, so my thing is, uh, I'm coming from a point of view when it comes to mental health. Hey, listen. The, 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 don't listen to me. Go call some of the folks that have been in the fight for the last three years in Illinois who are frustrated. They want an opportunity. Remember the numbers. Illinois is doing $1 billion in revenue right now. And the same people that have been fighting and have, been, and have had an application submitted looking for their opportunity, they're three years now with money that's been put in, with resources that have been put in. Why is it that at the start of the race that the, the marginalized businesses have to like literally sit at the start and wait for three, four, five years to go by, go by before they have an opportunity to enter into a market? It's just not fair. It's not right. And it just needs to be fixed. That's the way American capitalism works, Raz, unfortunately. And uh, we got to get yep. that changed. So definitely, definitely appreciate you covering that story. And I, I hope Illinois makes enough noise to get that shit fixed. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we're at the end of time for that one. Um, up next, we hailing straight out of the longest of all beaches here in California. Our next correspondent is the CEO of deliciously vegan edible brand, Fruit Slabs. He's also a cannabis and intellectual property attorney, and his beard game has been known to set a vibe many describe as strong. Coming to stage next, Brandon Dorsky. What you got for us today, my man? Thanks for having me today. Uh, My headline comes from A.J. Harrington at High Times. It's first-time Congress candidates running on a pro-platform. The article starts with some unsubstantiated claims that Democrats have taken the lead in Congress on federal cannabis legalization, talks a little bit about Chuck Schumer's history before it goes into speaking about some of these rookie or new politicians. Uh, It acknowledges that Perlmutter out of Colorado won't be running for re-election, and so it's time for a new crop of pro-pot candidates. The article then profiles two candidates in particular, Charlie Thompson, a Democrat out of Tennessee, and Jackie McGowan out of Illinois. Thompson, if victorious, plans to advocate for cannabis reform amongst other progressive proposals like voting rights, immigration reform, combating climate change. Thompson himself has admitted that he sold cannabis and other substances as a middle schooler. In an interview, he said, quote, I grew up on the streets, you know, slinging dope. I started that way and I saw that people actually use it for self-medication. I saw that because of our system, people are looking for uh, pain relief for their daily elements that they can't get health care for because they can't afford it. Thompson believes cannabis should be legalized and launched without taxes initially, acknowledging that what he wants to do is, quote, make the price low enough that the street dealers can't compete with the legal dealers. Thompson believes legalization would limit demand for drug cartel cannabis and reduce their influence in cannabis producing regions in the United States. Thompson's first test of his position will take place on May 24th of this year when he's on the ballot for the November general election in the state of Tennessee. Jackie McGowan is running for the House seat representing the 17th District of Illinois. 
McGowan had recently been in California prior to returning to Illinois, where she worked as a cannabis industry consultant and ran as a backup candidate in the Newsom recall. McGowan was exposed to cannabis at a young age in her household, where her mother was the victim of domestic abuse, and she observed that her father's use of cannabis actually reduced his aggressions towards her mother. McGowan believes her California stint has given her insight into the challenges of cannabis regulation and how to repair the broken program in California at the federal level. She is quoted as saying, I saw and I had a firsthand experience, a front row seat, to how California messed up legalization for adult use initially, for medical, and then for adult use purposes. I'm not willing to sit back and let the federal government screw it up just as much as California has. McGowan thinks that the cannabis reform movement should focus on those passionate about reform and less on winning over key policymakers. While spending most of the article giving shine to a couple Democrats, at the end, the author does acknowledge first-term GOP representative Nancy Maid out of South Carolina. In November, Maid introduced the State's Reform Act, a bill to legalize cannabis that takes a less comprehensive approach than the Moore Act, which has not been able to pass through both bodies of Congress. Uh, this is Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis. I want to talk to Jackie. <laughs> I'm afraid to talk about Jackie. Did anyone catch her latest Instagram Live? I just have to say I feel so bad for, one, for the Democratic Party, and for, two, the constituents of this district in Illinois that she has even been considered as a possible representative for this district. You know, initially I was like, yo, like how the fuck is this even happening? But look at the rest of the politicians in Illinois. Well, <laughs> I, I refuse to give this too much time. So let's go ahead and jump to our next correspondent, uh, Miss Laura DeCaro. You're taking Laura- away our spice. I know, I know. It's, I'm yeah. sorry. I was going to change my profile picture to the one of her with a joint oh and a gun in her hands. Stop oh, it's it. such Let's a good picture. It. All right, up next, Laura DeCaro, fighter for love and love, co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Section, and the founder of the San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, and the smoothest vocal cords on the West Coast. What do you have for us today, Ms. Laura DeCaro? Oh. I have some tea out of Jersey. Um, the the um, title of the article is Investors Claim, quote, looting at NJ Medical Marijuana Dispensary, sued to have independent manager run it. It's by Susan Livio for NJ Advanced Media at NJ.com. Apparently, Secaucus Investors, LLC, which won control of Foundation Harmony in a bitter arbitration battle last October, took the extraordinary step of asking for an emergency hearing in state superior court to appoint a, quote, custodian to oversee the daily operations and prepare it to be sold. Now, a court hearing uh, is scheduled for March 18th, so we may have an update for you later in the month. But this is sort of odd because ordinarily you would see sort of a receivership appointed. But this seems more of like a let's appoint a new CEO court kind of request, which is unusual. Anyway, the, the request seeks to oust Shia Bochandel, the former CEO and current board president, as well as board member Yehuda Mir. The lawsuit was filed for allegedly um, allowing tax bills to go unpaid, hiring family and friends for unnecessary work, and defying arbitration and judicial rulings from last fall regarding seating control and sharing financial records. Company counsel Peter Slocum called the allegations, quote-unquote, baseless 
and Harmony has appealed the arbitration ruling, it should be noted. So according to the article and other research, this company has been rife with controversy from the start. And I would love it if we have any Jersey-based listeners to come on stage to comment about this, because including what seems to me is an only in New Jersey sort of set of developments, they have they discovered some bankruptcies of two members. They listed a Dr. Alexander Martyrs, I don't know, I'm going to slaughter his Russian last name, as its medical advisor, who has also faced numerous allegations of, of fraud, including insurance fraud in New York, racketeering with a, a, a group of Russian-born doctors, local land use delays based on its location, being located in a city where the mayor never wanted them to open in the first place, and the senior executive, Robert Moroni, who filed a whistleblower lawsuit against him, the company for $1 million personal investment apparently Broad Chandel made to his brother's company in Israel. They also have um, listed a parody organization, the Cannabis College Amsterdam, as a legit educational institution issuing diplomas on one of their head growers' applications. And they had ties to a wealthy Monmouth man accused of benefiting from a massive Russian Ponzi scheme. So it's hard to believe that the investors are suddenly so concerned about the way this is being run. They have a long history in this organization of associations with potential bad actors. But they're saying that the investment in Israel is one of the driving reasons they're having him removed. Apparently, Harmony is about $30 million in debt. The Sea Caucus investors claim they are owed $18 million of that from an unpaid loan, but they also own 55% of the company, which probably came in association with that investment. Apparently, there's about $1.6 million in federal income taxes, $4 million uh, owed to a California company in exchange for, quote-unquote, valuable intellectual property, and more. It goes on and on. It should be really interesting to see how this plays out, but I'd have to note that it's really unusual to try to have a court replace the CEO. It's amazing that the board can't get that done. My name is Laura DeCaro, reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour, and I think we're at time. So. We are. Thank you so much, Laura. The 60 Minutes uh, comes up so quickly. Please follow that link and read. Go down the rabbit hole. It's pretty fun. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure to catch Catch the replay on Clubhouse or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts or on our YouTube channel. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave us a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Nicole and Rico for co-producing the show. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. Your addition to our show makes the State of Cannabis News Hour news you can trust. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note and join us every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Say goodbye, Rico. Goodbye.